Revelation 9. And uh, we're in the middle of, uh, of, of chapter 9. We will recap a little of what we did uh, with chapter 9 last week. And um, we'll see how far we get. How about that? There you go. <laughs> um, we, we looked at the first 11 verses, first 12 verses. Uh, last time you have the, the fifth trumpet sounding and uh, essentially our, our recap of, of that section is if you remember you have these uh, locusts that are coming up out of the abyss and the smoke uh, and they have some pretty crazy uh, descriptions with them. They uh, look like horses prepared for battle, verse 7. They have crowns of gold on their head, and uh, but they have human faces and teeth like lions and women's hair and breastplates of iron. And the noise is like uh, chariots with horses rushing back and forth. And they have uh, scorpion tails that sting to hurt people. And it's like, okay. <laughs> so, uh, we went through all of that imagery. We noted that God uses locusts as not only a uh, em- emblem of judgment in, in the prophets, uh, but you also see that in the Exodus, that that was one of the tools that God used as a plague upon Egypt to set his people free. You had God making promises that he would use that against his people. Uh, if they broke the covenant, you see that in Joel 1 and uh, in, in Joel 2 as well. Um, the imagery here, I think, makes it pretty apparent that you are getting the description of a powerful, frightening army. And it's trying to, to conjure that up and with the, the army sounds, the chariots, the horses, the, the crowns. They have the authority with that. So it's, it's just trying to give us that that. A uh, frightening image of a powerful army is going to to uh, be used as a as a tool of judgment uh, by by God. That was um, as far as we we got. We didn't get to talk about who did all this, so we'll talk about that uh, in just a moment. But are you okay with where we are with the the symbol of the locust that we talked about last week? That Pointing to some kind of army, some kind of uh, invasion as kind of what this is all all getting at. All right. Good deal. All right. So in that sounding, the big question is, well, who is the one who's who's doing all of this? And uh, it is a little surprising to me how much debate there is surrounding this. So we'll see if we need to talk about uh, this this idea uh, as as well or not. But. You'll notice that verse 1 uses the declaration that we have this one that, that John sees that is like a star falling from heaven to the earth uh, who is given the key to the shaft of the bottomless uh, pit or the abyss. Uh, and verse 11 then gives clarity about who this individual is. Uh, they have as king over them the angel of the abyss or the bottomless pit. His name is... In Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now, uh, we quickly were able to take note of the fact that you can find Abaddon in the Old Testament, uh, and it is typically linked to the idea of Sheol, seems to be an equation to that. Uh, When you read Sheol, uh, that Hebrew word in the Old Testament, 
that word refers to the grave or death. You know, that's what you'll have, you know, going down into Sheol is this idea of going down into the grave, into the pit, and essentially representing uh, death. So you have that kind of linkage that, that's happening here. Now, a couple things for me, and then we can kind of talk about this. I, I don't see any other way to get away from this not talking about Satan as the one that's doing this, the one that has power over this abyss, power over death, uh, to me seems to be very unavoidable. What I only thing that I can see that in arguments that are made against him being the individual is because uh, a lot of the scholars and writers don't like the idea of God using Satan as the one to release these locusts to, to do all of this. Now, to me, that's a head scratcher because I read all over the Bible God using Satan to accomplish his purposes. Uh, to me, the most obvious one is Judas. Uh, it says Satan entered into Judas' heart, but obviously this was part of the for knowledge and will and plan of God for Judas to be the betrayer. Jesus knew it was him, hands him the bread, tells him to do that. This was determined before the foundations of the world. So uh, the idea that God could not be accomplishing his judgments and accomplishing his will through him doesn't bother me. <laughs> I don't understand why that would bother people, but if it bothers you, I'd be happy to talk about it. But that's the only argument I see against reading uh, it this way. This looks like a terrifying creature who is described as a polyon and a baton. Uh, to me, this being a, a good angel sent from God doesn't isn't congruent, but that's <laughs> that just doesn't work. Um, to call it, uh, to say that he has power over Sheol or the grave or death is exactly what the New Testament says, like in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, where you're told there that we have been set free from the one who had the power of death over us. We no longer have that fear. Why? Well, that's what the cross does. It's, we no longer have fear of Satan who had the power over death. Well, okay, so here's the one being described that way. Uh, as the one that has power over over death, um, you, you'll all we'll get there in a minute. But you'll you'll see Satan's use in chapters twelve and thirteen. He is going to unleash these beasts that come out of the sea and out of the land, and are going to bring about judgments. And we're going to read all of that as well. So this shouldn't be problematic either, because everybody agrees that the dragon in chapter twelve is Satan. That's that's for sure in, in chapter 12. And at the end of chapter 12, beginning of chapter 13, he unleashes the beast. Well, then it's okay for him to unleash locusts, right? And it's same kind of same kind of picture. All right, so questions or thoughts or um, concerns or any of that, Charlotte? Does he unleash an army here on earth? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. So somebody is getting judged. We've seen that since chapter six. So somebody is receiving judgment. That's what all these pictures have been pointing to. Uh, and it's the same idea like when you see in Joel one and Joel two, the use of the symbol of locusts coming turned out to be the Babylonians coming against Judah and Jerusalem in, in Joel's prophecy. Same idea here, pointing to some nation, some group of people is being used by God to bring about 
uh, this judgment. But up to this point, we haven't been told exactly who, but we are going to spend our class this morning kind of recapping, and I think the weight of clues is starting to get heavier and heavier, so we'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, but any questions then about the fifth trumpet before we, we, we leave it here? So that's that's our image. We've had the partial judgments for these first few trumpets that have been given. And now we are starting to see that uh, more is being unveiled. Here is this fifth trumpet. And it is a picture of Satan using a powerful army to bring about judgments against whatever wicked nation or people this is that has not been clearly identified quite yet. Uh, that's kind of all we have so far. Any feeling good? I can pass out a quiz and you're okay. okay. All right. So one of the things I just want to backtrack for a minute because one of the things that it can be challenging is particularly to the size of the book of Revelation is we can get so zeroed into looking at the, the ants on the bark of the trees that we could miss the whole forest that's going on as we're traveling through the book. And so I think it's useful to back up a little bit every once in a while and kind of scan back and see see exactly what we've been seeing so far. We, we started with talking about the scroll in Revelation 5 that is sealed and that no one can open. And then as you come into Revelation 6, you're now watching those seals being opened. Who is the only one who was worthy to open the scroll? So here the Lamb, Christ, he's the only one who is as worthy to open this this scroll that has been sealed. We noted that we have a sealed scroll in Daniel 12 that is sealed up until the time of the end, until the latter days. Remember, Daniel wants to know the things that have uh, been revealed to him through these amazing visions and prophecies. He's told Go your way, sealed to the time of the end. Essentially, don't worry about it. It's not for you. But that's in Daniel 12, verse 4, as well as in Daniel 12 and, and verse 9. And we talked about if you go into the book of Daniel and you scour through and note what prophecies are in the first century, if you're standing in the first century, that have not occurred yet. You would have these. You have a picture of the shattering of the power of the holy people. You have a picture of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And you also have a picture of destruction of that fourth terrifying beast, fourth empire. If you're in Daniel 2, it's that fourth empire, the fourth of the statue. If you're in Daniel 7, there's four terrifying beasts. It's that fourth one that needs to be destroyed. So you're getting pictures in Daniel that says if you're standing there in the first century, there are certain things that God said in Daniel that have not happened yet. And these are the things that you haven't seen yet. Is that okay? He talked about the holy people being shattered. Now you might be able to say that might be in process because remember Revelation 6, fifth seal, who's under the altar? Right. The, the, the people of God who have been killed for the word of God and the testimony of Christ. And they are crying out how long until there is judgment, how long until you do something about this. So that might already be in play as the book of Revelation is, is playing out. But two things that we would be looking at if you were standing there in the days of Jesus is going, OK, well, uh, these two things still have to happen. Jerusalem has to be dealt with. That's from Daniel 9 as well as uh, Daniel 12. And you also have 
the uh, destruction of the Roman Empire from Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and Daniel and Daniel 9. Uh, we noted in, in, in chapter 6 with the, the sealed people who are under the altar crying out how long. Uh, there has to be a judgment for those who are persecuting God's people. And I asked you a few times, in the early days of Christianity, who are the initial persecutors of Christians? The Jews are initially, and then as time marches on, who becomes persecutors? The Romans become persecutors. You do have two groups of people who are problematic. In the beginning, the Romans really aren't that big of a problem. It is the Jews who are running Paul out of the synagogue, dragging him out, stoning him, and leaving him for dead. It is uh, them that are the ones that are causing the persecution in Jerusalem that scatters all of the disciples and only the apostles remain in the book of Acts. And when you're reading Acts, it is always pointing to uh, the Jews are the ones who are who are constantly uh, the problem. In fact, Paul often has to write about how they're uh, upending the faith of Christians and causing those kinds of difficulties and problems. But as you get past the destruction of Jerusalem, that begins to shift. Emperors are going to arise who are going to be persecutors of the people of God as well. So. There needs to be judgment on those who are harming the people of God. I would observe from the point above on the screen, those are the two things that were still outstanding when you're standing in the first century that Daniel said had to be dealt with. The Jews are persecutors. Okay, well, then they need to be dealt with. The Romans are persecutors. Okay, well, they're going to have to be dealt with uh, as, as well. Charlotte? Yeah, and they and they do see um, particularly Daniel eleven as strongly pointing to the Roman Empire. I'll talk about the ships of Katim in chapter eleven that are going to come, and uh, Jewish authors at that time will be like, "Yeah, that's the Romans." Um, so, yeah, they they do observe those kinds of things. They do. Uh, one of the other things we talked about is in chapter six and verse eight that. There is this emphasis in the judgment that there's going to be a killing by sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And you remember we went back and noted God uses those four terms when he talks about covenantal disobedience by Israel. You have in places like Leviticus and Ezekiel and Jeremiah where those words are used to describe Israel needs to be judged because you have broken the covenant. And so when you read those four terms of falling by sword, pestilence, wild, wild beasts, and famine, uh, you would think, okay, well, that's, that's a covenantal curse that God is using uh, against his, his own people, against Israel. Um, we noted in chapter 6 and verse 16 that you have there the, that their people are going to call upon the rocks and the mountains to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Interestingly, we noted in, in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 30, 
Jesus said those words as he's uh, on his way to his crucifixion and tells them the same thing. Don't don't mourn for me. Mourn for yourselves because this is what's what's ultimately going to happen. And so he uses the same figure. And when Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24, he uses the same terminology, the great tribulation, which is a term you find in Revelation 7. It's a unique term. You only find it three times in the New Testament, twice in Revelation, once in Matthew 24. So to me, that's been always fascinating to me that the term great tribulation is not something thrown around about every event that happened during the first century uh, or written about by the apostles. But it is a fairly unique term. We see that in these first five trumpets that we've looked at from chapter eight to, uh, to chapter nine, they mirror some of those Egyptian plagues. And so that's interesting because then God used that in one way to free his people. And in another way, uh, those are promises that God made against Israel. When Moses preaches to the people in Deuteronomy, he tells them, if you do not keep the covenant, then all the plagues that came upon Egypt will come upon you. So you got to go, oh, <laughs> so a warning there of I'll do to you if you act in a similar way, which has always been what God says is I'll use the same same plagues upon you. Uh, we noted also last time in chapter eight and verse 13, you have an eagle pronouncing woes and you see that same thing in Deuteronomy that that's connected to proclaiming a covenant curse uh, on on Israel as well. And by the way, if your hand falls off, I'll email you the notes. Okay. All right. <laughs> Trying to <laughs> just just say you want email. Uh, then we talked. What we just recapped to this morning, as of from la- last week, we've seen the locusts used as judgments against Israel. We're seeing Satan now releasing an army from. Uh, the abyss, this as a as an instrument of, of judgment. One of the things that I want, I think, is interesting to note. We're not there yet, but in in chapter eleven and verse seven, <clears throat> you have a description here about a beast that rises out of the bottomless pit. <laughs> well, you we haven't seen the beast yet. That that comes out in chapter thirteen. But he's described here back here in chapter 11 as that. So to me, there is a connection that the beast and the locusts are linked together. That what Satan has just launched out of this, this abyss that are described as these locusts could very well be one and the same, that Roman empire that he's going to use as a, as a destroyer, which is what I told you. There's like about two things that everybody agrees upon in, in Revelation, and the Roman Empire, Revelation 13, is one of them. <laughs> the beast must be the Roman Empire. So it is interesting that in 11:7, you're connecting the two of them and describing the beast that comes out of the abyss. Well, okay. Well, what has come out of the abyss so far? Well, the only thing that we've seen come out of the abyss so far is is locusts. So here's my conclusion to you: with, is with this. Not any one of these clues is conclusive to about who the object of God's wrath is. But I would say up to this point, the weight is pushing against Israel, against Jerusalem. Now, we don't have anything concrete. When, we, when we're in chapter 10, which probably will happen in the next class, but when we get to chapter 10 here, it will become conclusive. It will become pretty unavoidable. But I want you to see that there's this kind of this swelling of information that is 
pushing in this direction. One of the things that I want you to think about, too, is with this picture of this, these locusts in chapter 9 as this great terrifying army that is being unleashed to cause judgments, if the judgment right now is against the Roman Empire themselves, then the question is, well, then who's the, the terrifying army that's destroying them? That, that hangs as a question. The, the locusts sound like the global world power. They're the ones destroying. That's like in Joel 1 and 2. Here's Israel, and the locusts are unleashed, and the locusts are the Babylonians. They're the world empire. They're coming to destroy Jerusalem. Well, you're getting a parallel. Uh, okay, with locusts are being used again. Well, God uses that as the world empire. Rome is the world empire. Well, they're about to destroy something is what we're setting up for. So who are they destroying? And if it's not Rome destroying Jerusalem, then who's being destroyed and who's destroying them? That, to me, becomes part of the weight of, of what we're seeing uh, so, so far in, in this first half. Okay. Questions about that before we take on the sixth, the sixth trumpet? But I just kind of just want you to feel the weight of what we've seen so far and where we're going with all of this. But do note, don't think I'm going to tell you the whole book's Jerusalem because I've told you Daniel's got two things that have to be dealt with. We're only talking about one so far. We've got more. There's more that has to happen. We can't just zero in on one and be done. There's, there's more. Chapter 10 will even say that as well. But just moving along with what it tells us. Okay, good. I can't wait to pass out the quiz. Verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet. Chapter 9, verse 13. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Saying that to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates with color of fire and of sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual morality uh, or their thefts. All right, let's talk about what we see here. First picture, verses 13 and, and 14, we're told that here we are looking at the four angels who are holding back these winds at the four corners uh, of the earth. Where have we seen them? Back in seven, okay? So remember that you have God saying at the end of chapter six, lights out for a nation. Sun is darkened, moon's not giving its light, stars are falling from the sky. A nation is done for. And then as you turn to chapter 7, there's this, but wait one minute before we do that, 
We need to seal the servants of God. And chapter 7 spent its time talking about how those who belong to God are identified. And until they're sealed, then we can't have this judgment happen yet. All right. So chapter 7 saw them sealed. So now we're okay for this judgment to happen, which is what is being described here. Now the command is given in verse 14. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so... Here now they're going to unleash this, this judgment upon uh, what's described as the earth since it's the four winds of, of the earth or the four winds of heaven. And so this great judgment now is going to, to be inflicted. You'll notice in verse 15 that we have a third of the mankind. We're back to our thirds again, which is what we've been seeing back in, in chapter 8 with all of these thirds as each of these trumpets were, were blown. Did you notice something unusual about... What is said about what this judgment is doing in verse in verse uh, 15 it says they're released to do what to a third of mankind. Yeah. All right. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we read back in chapter eight that these locust things with horse heads and scorpion tails, they were had the power to torment, but not kill. Right. So. So I, I'm wanting you to catch something. This is not that, okay, the Bible's incongruent, throw it out and all that. But again, to, to emphasize the symbolism that, that's going on here. That, you know, we have been talking about not getting stuck in the details of, you know, okay, well, what's going to happen that it, people are going to get harmed, but they're not going to die, but their wish they're going to die as if it's going to be in this exact literal image. But Again, trying to communicate an overwhelming army is, is, is arising. It's the same imagery that we just read about in, earlier in, in uh, chapter 9 with these uh, locusts that are scorpions and horses. Well, that's what you see, verses 16, 17, uh, and 18 now, now describing. So, again, just trying to give you a feel of, just like we've seen throughout our study, that there are things where you're like, like uh, when Israel's tribes are named and you're like, well, that's unusual. Well, that's telling you don't don't get stuck in that like this is a literal actual. And the same thing here. Don't read one third and go, OK, I have to have one third of the world die or one third of a nation die. And until exactly one third dies, then it hasn't happened yet. It, it's trying to provoke the imagery. The first imagery was. When this army comes, people are going to want to die. It's going to be torment. And when this army comes, people are going to die. It is going to be vicious. It isn't just going to be people in pain, but they don't actually kill anybody. It's trying to ramp up the imagery. The prior trumpet was extraordinary pain. Now this trumpet is extraordinary death is, is going to happen. And, and to help with that, what, who, how many uh, of, of this army do we have? Verse 16 gives you the count. Yeah, I mean, well, that's rational, right? 200 million? Okay, so obviously we're not in the literal counting of details, are we? So if you read an army of 200 million are coming, what would you think? Oh, <laughs> yeah, and what would you think about yourself? We're done, right? An army of 200 million, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, nobody's ever mustered an army like that. That is that is outrageous. That's that's you know approaching what almost more than half of what our whole population is in this country. Uh, it is a huge, huge number, 
And the whole idea is, again, this overwhelming flood, which is what the imagery has been. When this army comes, they've got crowns on their heads. They're going to win. They've got power like scorpions. They've got teeth like lions. This is a ferocious army that's coming, and you have no chance of survival. You are not going to get through this. People are going to wish they were going to die when this happens, and even many are going to die when, when this ultimately begins to happen. That's really what your big imagery is pushing at to try to get us to see. And again, I, I've talked about this quite a few times. I think if you get stuck in little details, you miss the big idea of just, you know, take the visual in of what that's trying to tell you. This is frightening. This is ferocious. This is huge. And these are large numbers. When you say 10,000 times 10,000 times two, <laughs> that's, that's a shocking uh, picture that, that's being given there. All right, yeah, Julie? It absolutely is. And this becomes a repetitive problem that, again, gives us another clue to a Jerusalem-Judah kind of judgment. Because this is how God operated with his people all of the time. Probably one of the best examples of this is in the days of Hezekiah. You might remember Assyria conquers the northern nation of Israel. And it's not like they went to the border and saw the line there and went, oh, okay, I guess we should go home. You know, it tells us they conquered all of the fortified cities of Judah as well and came up against Jerusalem. You might remember that's when you have the Assyrian commander hollering to the walls to Hezekiah. You better give up and don't think that your God's going to save you. We just wiped out your God when we took out Israel. So you're not going to make it. You're done for. And you remember Hezekiah prays and Isaiah gives the answer and the Assyrian army is whipped by an angel in the middle of the night and drives them back. It was supposed to be a time to wake up the king and wake up the people for repentance or they were going to fall. Did the nation turn around? No, because who was the next king after Hezekiah? Manasseh. That went real well. Uh, no, he's the worst king that Judah ever had in, in ruling. And it is over and over again stated in the book of Kings. It's because of him that ultimately judgment ha- had to fall. The thing that God is doing in these pictures is to try to get the people to turn around and repent. But here's the sad picture in 20 and 21. They don't. And that is the way God operates and why you've seen fractions so far. Is God is acting, bringing out partial judgments, trying to wake up the people, trying to turn the hearts back to God, but it's ineffective. After all this that happens, the people still do not repent. And so ultimately, then God is going to bring a final judgment, which is what chapters 10 and 11 talk about. I don't get the impression that 
Jews were still worshiping idols, like it says here. Okay, so let's let's talk about that because I've heard that that as well. So are idols only physical graven images that you store in your closet or in your house that you bow down to? No. no. Okay. So one of the things that I think is, is, is a good reminder is while we don't read about them going back into the physical objects of idolatry, has their heart returned to God? And we know that very quickly. This last Wednesday night, we did a survey of Malachi. How are the hearts of the people in the days of Malachi? Awful. They're saying, what a weariness. We don't want to worship. They're offering the lame and the blind animals. So they still have idolatry. It's not the physical little object, but their hearts are not worshiping God. They're tied to everything else in the world. So to me, that is the answer. And the Old Testament even talks about Jeremiah talks about that. You have idols in your heart. That's that's your big problem. Dennis? Uh, Before we go to the 200 million, just the numbers, just just 200 men, 200 million men, then the horses, and then the description of the horse's mouth, the tail. I mean, 200 million is bad enough. Yeah. Yeah. Just 200 million people. But it's worse than that. Yeah. It's it's with scorpion tails and smoke coming out. Yeah. It's it's bad, April. Yeah, if you read the days of Jesus, read the Gospels, does it sound like they still have idolatry in their heart? <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. There's a reason why John has to come and say, you guys need to repent. Uh, you guys are a brood of vipers, you know, and Jesus is uh, having to cleanse the temple because it's ter- been turned into such a marketplace and a bunch of shenanigans rather than a place of prayer and worship to God as it was intended. None of the problems had been solved. Even though Jerusalem had been destroyed in 586, the people come back in on the land and it really isn't any better. You read Ezra and Nehemiah, it sounds like the first thing they do is start marrying foreign women and divorcing their, their wives of their youth. And, and, and Ezra is out of his mind about it. Like, this is one of the reasons we went into captivity in the first place. And here you are already going back to this. You might remember Haggai and Zechariah have to preach to the people because they don't even have a heart to build the temple. It, it's come to a stop. It's been sitting there desolate for 20 years. Nobody wants. And Haggai says, you're more busy with your houses than you are about my house. Idolatry hadn't left their heart. It had left perhaps the physical entity trinket that tracked them all the way back to the days of Egypt. But uh, heart issues still a big problem, Debbie. Well, it's just it's not so hard to imagine, really. I mean, look at us today. Look at what's yeah. Going on. Yeah. Do we have an idolatry problem in our country? No, no, because we don't have little bales in our closet. Oh, we have a big idolatry problem. It just doesn't take the form of engraving something and having that physical thing. It's, you know, what we drive or where we work or what we wear or uh, (laughs) just on and on and on the things that that we we have. Well, even, I mean, there's terrible, terrible sinful things that are being celebrated. Absolutely. So this 
It, it is us. It absolutely is. And so God is using these things to try to generate a wake-up call to the people so that they will repent. There's a, a certain horrible irony to the thing they're worshiping is Satan, mm-hmm. ultimately. ultimately. And the thing that's destroying them is coming from Satan. Yep. There is no mercy in him that can that worshiping him provide. That's right. The, the, the thing I walk away with with the, the image of all of these things is these things, the, the, the horses, all of that, it's merciless. There is no reasoning with it. There is no there's no safety they're going to find even by being worshippers of idols in all of this. It's yes. going to simply be Absolutely. Being tortured twice, essentially. You are. It's a a vivid imagery, isn't it, that really communicates that. You have given your allegiance to the other side, and the other side's going to be the reason why you're going to fall. I think that's great, Mike. No, I just initially, you know, when you look at the imagery of the horse, it sounds so benign, but if you go back to Job 39 and start reading, uh, starting verse 19 through 24, gives you an idea of the imagery of how you know how strong this is and how uh, relentless it can be mm-hmm. and doesn't very have doesn't have very many weaknesses if at all. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, you, you want to read chapter nine verse verse nineteen and go, Oh, it, the power of the horses in their mouths and their tails. How cute, right? Horses and and it, but don't put the period there, <laughs> uh, because it says it's like serpent heads and uh, scorpion tails. And you go, oh, that's not good. <laughs> These are not cute horses. These are judging ones. These are painful, tormenting uh, ones as, as well. Other questions about this? All right. <clears throat> I'll give you one other thing with this then, and then... We have a minute. We can start a little of 10. To me, as I'm showing you that I believe the clues are mounting up to a pointing of the the fall of Jerusalem in the first century, it is to me not lost on, on me that these are the very words that Jesus was saying when he talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. Because you might remember one of his woes is woe to the nursing mothers. And woe to the pregnant women. Woe to you guys. Because you you think my death is bad? You, you won't believe what you all are about to go through and experience. And it, you go read the history of what happened. The Roman Empire did not just come in and go, hey, we take Jerusalem. Everybody, everybody, everything's great. For three and a half years, they surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Never mind, they had conquered much of Judea on their way in. So again, you're not talking about only Jerusalem, but here they are and they're capturing people and killing people as they enter into Judea. They surround the city of Jerusalem and they invoke a three and a half year siege where no one, no one's allowed to come in or leave. No supplies are coming in. No food's coming in. You just cut off a city. It's a great way to win win victories in those days. If you could just cut off supply lines, you can just outlast them. And so for three and a half years, you have Vespasian who begins that siege around Jerusalem, and he cuts them off. Josephus wrote a whole book called Wars. 
don't read that when you're eating because it's graphic and horrifying of the descriptions of what do you think goes on in a city when people don't have supplies anymore. You know, you got a taste of it when like for two weeks we didn't have toilet paper and people are like, ah, it's hard to get meat and toilet paper. What are we going to do? Three and a half years. Nothing's coming in. You only have what's inside and when it's gone, it's gone. And the terror of what is described of what was going on in the city is, is shocking. It's grotesque. There's a reason why you didn't want to be pregnant and you didn't want to have little infants because they were going to die and there's record of them eating their children. It was awful what happened when you have a three and a half year siege and, there, and you are that hungry and there is no food. To me, that relates well here of starting with there's going to be horrifying torments that are going to go on. And people are going to wish they could die. And then finally, you're going to get to this lights out picture in chapters 12 and 13. Whatever's being depicted here, whatever point of view you want to have of what the object of God's wrath is, you have to note that chapter 9 is gruesome and terrifying. It's not just like, oh, these locusts are going to come and you're going to fall. The torment is in their tails, and you're going to wish that you could die. You're going to cry out for the rocks to fall on you. It's going to be so bad that you will not want to be a part of this. And that is what chapter 8 is just just emphasizing, and, and, or chapter 9 is emphasizing. And remember, that's what you saw back in chapter 8, verse 13. After these thirds were described, chapter 8, verse 13 says, Whoa, because it's only going to get worse. That's what the eagle flying is saying, is that you thought the warm-up was bad. Just wait till this finale happens. It's going to be, it's going to be awful. Okay, so again, nothing has conclusively proven Jerusalem yet, just showing weight of evidence so far. I think chapter 10 and chapter 11 will, will definitely do that. We'll look at that over the, over the next few weeks. Are there questions about that, though? Be good on that because I can warm you up to chapter 10 because I'd like for you to do some homework on it. Okay, so chapter 10, first two verses. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. And he had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. I think that's so interesting. I love this little scene here. And so now we have this angel who has a scroll and he takes his stand. Now, keep that visual in your mind. That's a really important visual. And now you have seven thunders that are sounding. And... And John is about to write all those things down. What's he told? Don't. Don't write it down. Why not? What does he say? Verse 4. Instead of writing it down, what's he do? Seal it up. Seal it up. That reminds you of something? 
That's like what Daniel, same thing. If you're sealing it up, the information's not being revealed. The information is being concealed. John's about to tell you everything that he just heard. And God goes, no, no, <laughs> uh, seal that information up. What is fascinating to me is, you know, that, that just, where you get, that doesn't come up again. It's, it's so interesting that here is a picture that God gives and he says, there's a whole lot more to say about these things, but I'm, I'm not revealing that part. I'm holding that off. Instead of dragging that into seven, it's almost like here's our six seals going to open up seven more thunders, just like the six seals have opened up the, 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 the trumpets. And he goes, no, we're not going to do that. There are some things that are going to be held off, Jim. Yeah, that's a good question. We'll have to save that. Good. We'll come back to that. Yeah. We've not heard of the seven thunders before. The first time. Yeah, this is our first seven thunders. So what I want you to do for your homework is notice that this angel carries similar characteristics. Similar characteristics to the angel in Daniel 12. And what's on my screen that we don't have time for is I want you to go back and forth between Revelation 10 and Daniel 12 and note all the descriptions about those two angels, what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're holding, and how they're standing. And note all of their comparisons and parallels. And notice if there's any distinctions in them at all, because that's going to be very important to what we're going to see in, in, in chapter 10. So look back at that. Spend your time uh, doing that. Now, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up. Fair warning. You get two weeks to work on that. It's spring break next week. I'm going to be out of town. And I thought it would be totally unfair to ask somebody to take the class right here. You know, here, you guys take, take Revelation. Go. <laughs> And it's like, be like, no, 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 no. So for, for next week, what I'm going to do is on the times that I'm out of town is why don't we go back to the Psalms and pick up those Psalms that we were doing. Uh, and then when I'm back, we can pick up back into Revelation and we'll use that. So that would mean for next week, you're in Psalm 90 uh, for, for, next, for next week. And uh, I'll have the papers to pass out for you for Wednesday and for the next, next Sunday. But just to give you awareness that you get two weeks of homework to work on this because chapter 10 is really important. So I do please spend a lot of time in it and look at it. This is going to be pivotal to now revealing who are we talking about. All right, 14-minute break, reconvene at 1030. Thanks, everybody.